Welcome to the You Can Make a Living in the Music Industry podcast from Nashville, Tennessee. I am your host, John Martin Keith. Celebrities, working class musicians, and people who work behind the scenes in all areas of the music industry will share their stories, encourage you, and give practical advice of ways you can make a living doing what you love in the music industry. This episode is brought to you by Eden Brook Productions. Edenbrook Productions is the company I founded to help musicians grow in their craft. Are you a songwriter, but maybe you've been told your songs aren't quite there yet? Or are your songs ready, but you don't feel stage ready? Or maybe music is your passion, but you feel imprisoned by your day job and you don't know what to do next to make your dream a reality. Well, Edenbrook Productions is here to help. We offer consulting services via phone call, Skype, and FaceTime. And for the You Can Make a Living in the Music Industry podcast listeners, we're offering an introductory one-hour consultation special. Click on the link in the show notes to contact me, and let's get you making a living in the music industry. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for hanging out with us and joining our conversation today. My guest today is Doug DeAngelis. Doug is a massive pioneer in the music industry. When dance music, or what we know as house music, became a big thing, Doug was at the forefront of that era, and he helped kind of shape what we know house music and dance music to be. So that is such a cool thing. And he got started out really kind of around the age of 19. His first time producing an album was Nine Inch Nails with their debut album. And so that's kind of like his baseline is starting with that, which is amazing. Doug is a music supervisor. He is a composer for TV shows and film. Uh, he does the music for award shows. When we watch an award show on TV and wonder where the music comes from, Doug is responsible for those things, which is really the reason that I wanted him to come on and talk with us today because that was sort of the intro for me. That was such a quirky thing that I thought, I've got to have this guy on this show to talk about that because somebody listening wants to know what that's like and how to get into that. And he has just done so much, so many different things in this industry that we're breaking this thing into two parts. So this is part one as we talk about producing, touring, composing, and music directing. Be sure to get a pad and pen and get ready to take lots of notes. Hey everybody, I am hanging out here with my new friend, Doug DeAngelis. Hey Doug, how are you? Hi, great. Thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today. And um, man, we met, just so the audience knows, we met uh, like two months ago briefly at a music supervision event in Nashville called Who Knew uh, An Evening with Music Supervisors, something, yes. something to that effect. And you and a panel of other music supervisors were there listening and kind of judging some contestants, some performers coming on to share their music, like sort of a, a live Shark Tank sort of event. Yeah. And it was phenomenal, man. The, the musicians, the bands were, were really great. And, and I, I write music for film and TV. So I wanted to make sure I had a chance to meet you and some of the other um, supervisors there and get connected. Great. And the reason that I was drawn to you was because you had mentioned the fact that you supply music or create music for award shows on TV. And I just thought that was a random thing, but also a really cool thing because, you know, people don't think about that. Everybody watches award shows at some point in their life. They've watched an award sure. show. And for me, I grew up, I loved watching award shows when, they, when I was a kid. Like, I, I longed for the day when those came on because I thought, someday I'm going to do that. Right. I'm going to be one of those artists doing those types of things. But then you've got all the music going on, the presenters coming out, and when somebody wins an award, they play their song and all this other stuff. But nobody ever thinks about where it comes from or who creates it or who supplies it or whatever. And so when you mentioned the fact that that's something that you do, I thought that was just really unique. And it's like, I need to talk to him and I need to get him on my show because that's what this show is about. It's all these different facets of the music industry that people may want to get in, get involved in. And somebody's watching an award show someday going, I want to create music for an award show. You know, as random as that might seem, somebody wants to do it because obviously you're doing it. Absolutely. You know? And uh, I thought, man, I just got to get this guy on the show and, sure. and find, find sure. out you compose and for TV shows and all kinds of other stuff as well. But that was just like the little the clicker for me. I've got to meet this guy for that that oh, purpose. That's interesting. <laughs> cool. So yeah. I appreciated you being willing to uh, come on and talk with me. And so, briefly, just kind of share your background of where 
you're from and what kind of got you into music in the first place? Sure. I actually grew up in Connecticut. Okay. Was a, you know, I'm always drawn to music technology, synthesizers mm -hmm. mainly, just obsessed and fascinated with them when I was really little. So I had a, probably about, I guess I was eight years old or so. I used to ride my bike to a music store every day after school, straight to the music store. Yep. And I used to program synthesizers. There was a great guy who worked at a, his name was John Mosey. He's still to one of the dearest people to me because he met me every day. He worked at the music store and he was, uh, and he would be, he was so patient. He would teach me how to program mini Moogs and it was all pre MIDI days, you know, but yeah. how to program analog synths and, and the early uh, systems that were out at the time work with CV and all that kind of stuff. And then uh, I wound up going to college for that. I went to Berkeley and studied music synthesis. And I was different than everybody at Berkeley. I was, uh, I was a kid who grew up fascinated with sound and new wave music and mm -hmm. layers and textures. And Berkeley at the time was all bebop kids of bebop okay. famous bebop players i mean right. it was one after the next you were this person and that person and you know they could all sit and do these incredible you know crazy harmony projects and stuff and i was just my world was so different i saw music in colors and textures and layers and so i felt always kind of um drawn to keep to search for me who for me I think that was, I was just enthusiastic. I think, you know, as we talk down the road about all of this, enthusiasm is the single best ingredient in professional musicianship. Nothing beats enthusiasm. So I was enthusiastic. I wanted to do it. I, I knew what I loved and I just wanted to do it. So I found my way over to a place called Synchrosound that was owned by the band The Cars, the late Rick Ocasek, who just passed now. And right. they had actually split up just then right around that time and Rick moved to Florida and the other guys were all still there and it was changing hands to some producers who I had actually done some work with. I was doing a lot of work in bands and in different things in Boston. And I started working there and we had a MIDI room, the only first MIDI rooms there ever was. And I just, I mean, I just took the reins and, and did everything I possibly could there. And, uh, so this was, you had a job here, correct? I, I was, I was started as an intern, but I very quickly okay. became like, second the second guy okay. they had a they had a, a chief engineer there who came out of a like classical engineering background he was like a classical engineer boom from he worked at one of the big studios up in boston and his name was Kotz. he was brilliant he taught me a lot of fundamentals of recording so i came in knowing all the all the poppy techy trendy how to program and make cool sounds mm -hmm. and he was classical mic placement engineer you know okay. Mic placement, don't touch the knobs, place the mics right, and you don't need to do anything. Get the right spots in the room. Taught me so much about listening and, you know, not grabbing, as I, you know, my instinct was grab the knobs, right? That's how what I grew up doing. Is this know? before or after Berkeley? This is during Berkeley. During so this Berkeley. is my first year at Berkeley. Okay, gotcha. So I was supposed to be in Berkeley, but I was always there. <laughs> so I kind of got sucked into it, and I just, to be honest, I mean, I... That was my life. I did what I had to do at Berkeley yeah. for as long as I could maintain it. And then I was, so I was doing the MIDI room thing and I was doing that. And I met some great bands there and we were working with all different music. And then I got a call one time from a manager asking me if I could work with a band, a new band for on TVT Records. And so we booked the sessions are you still an intern at this point? Oh uh, no, I, I was only an intern for a couple of weeks. Oh, I and then you were... very quickly became like Kotz is gotcha. the second guy. I see. Because they put a second studio downstairs. They put a MIDI room downstairs. So all I needed to do was know how to use the tape machine, which I knew how to use, and it was just a, a world of synthesizers. And gotcha. we had the first emulator three down there that I think one of the first ones that even came out. You have the E threes and it was an awesome MIDI room. And we just had a little uh I can't remember what kind of console, but a nice Harrison console or something down there. Um, so it was just, I knew how to, we had a, a Sony desk upstairs. I knew how to work all that stuff. Okay. Um, so I could function fine. Kotz was still their main dude upstairs and uh, got a call to do a MIDI 
MIDI room sessions, programming sessions. And it turned out that was uh, Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails, the first Nine Inch Nails album, Pretty Hate Machine. So um, it it shifted. It was supposed to be down in the MIDI room. It wound up moving up to the big room. We spent, they, I, you know, they brought in a, a brilliant producer named flood who is just a incredible icon in production, British producer. And he came in and we worked for five or six straight days, like right around the clock. I mean, we slept in the studio, never left there. Yeah. It was my first, it was the, it was the learning curve of, Oh, this is sometimes painful. You right. know, this is not always easy, you know? But it was absolutely great, and I knew when we did it that it was really a really special record. And shortly after that, I wound up uh, being asked to go out on tour with a band called Inner City. Um, Inner City was uh, one of the first pop house music acts. They were on Virgin Records. It was a it was a DJ from Detroit and a singer from Chicago. And at the time, I didn't even know what that whole scene was, the Detroit techno scene. But once you got to know it, Detroit techno was the birth of house music, right. which is really the birth of club music in America. Right. I mean, it started, it was trending in England. It was birthed really in Chicago and Detroit here. It moved to New York later. Um, so I wound up going out on tour, and I remember they called me to do this. They, need, they wanted somebody who could take the album, which was all club music, and it was charting in the States. Nothing had ever charted in that kind of, not on the pop charts. Right. And they wanted to take it out, but they wanted to do it with an all live band. So they wanted somebody who could convert all that stuff into electronics and make it so it looked like we were all playing it and doing it live. But it was all like, they didn't want any real instruments on the stage, all electronic. <laughs> wow. So we wound up, I said, sure, I'll do that. That sounds awesome. So I left my job for three weeks at Synchro Sound, went to Detroit to do it. And I came home 10 months later because it never stopped. We wound up going on the road. That album wound up having five number one singles on the top of the pops in, in England, five top dance singles here, five pop singles. Their, their, their world was pop music. Our world yeah. was dance. We called it dance music. Yeah. And uh, we just never came home. We, was, we just stayed out on the road forever. It was a brilliant tour. And when I got back from that, I started working with Kevin and the Detroit techno DJs because I knew how to do now. Now I'd been 10 months of immersed in that style of music. Mm -hmm. So he had a whole, they had record labels and they had all these artists. So we were in there programming and mixing and doing all that. And then I got itchy and the enthusiasm took over again. And I was like, I got to get to New York. New York is where it's at. So I actually commuted back and forth from Detroit to New York in my car every wow. week for probably six months. Wow. And I started working for uh, David Frank and McMurphy. They were called The System at the time. Also, David was a, one of the early uber pioneers of synthesis. I mean, he produced like, he did all the programming, like I Feel For You for Shaka Khan and Susudio for mm -hmm. Phil Collins. And he was just amazing. You mm -hmm. know, he was one of those, did a lot of work with Prince and it's awesome. So I started working at their studio, and from there I met. That's where I started working with all different big pop artists. All the big, all the big wigs. Everything <laughs> came from there, and then I wound up being a chief engineer in New York, and then went on my own and did the whole freelance thing. And so that was my life. My life took root in New York, but because I came out of such a strong dance music background, from, I mean, I went from they called me in Boston, and I would, you know, they said it's house music, and I was like. Whose house? Yeah. I didn't even I didn't know what mean? they were talking about, you yeah. know, to a year later, you know, I was so immersed in it. It was every day, 24 seven, that there was nobody at the time that really, there was a few of us that really un could understood programming, understood engineering and mixing and understood what house music was because it was so underground. So when I moved to New York, I wound up meeting all the big New York DJs and we did uh, lots of records. I mean, it was, it was uh, 10 years of remixing every pop record that came out from Michael Jackson to, you know, Pet Shop Boys, whatever it was. So you're, remixed. you're remixing every, all the pop music into dance, into house dance music. music. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So think, does, let me ask you this, does, uh, when you're doing that, does the record label approach you to say, Hey, we want you to take Michael Jackson's music and turn it into dance or like who tells, so who's referring you to do this? The record label would pick the DJ. Okay. The DJ remixer yep. would come into the, would pick me. Okay. So 
it became clicks. It yeah. was a really interesting time in New York because there was probably between London, Chicago, Detroit, um, there was probably 25 big DJs, big like world traveling, massive DJs. Mm-hmm. And there was probably five or six of us mm-hmm. who, so we each worked with about seven or eight of them. Everybody had their click, you know what I mean? Right. So I had my, you know, six or eight big DJs that I worked with them on every single record they did. So over the time, we, I mean, amassed probably, I think it 31 number one dance singles during that time. A lot of pop singles. It's just a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of work, though. A lot, yeah. you know. And again, I think enthusiasm ruled the day because they would come in. You know, I'd go in and start working on those records at noon, and they wouldn't come in until one in the morning a lot of times. Two in the morning, they'd show up. And if you couldn't show them what you did all day and then still be enthusiastic to get all of their ideas in and be still going at nine and 10 in the morning, then you weren't the right guy because they just woke up at one in the morning. Yeah. They were just ready to go and they <laughs> yeah. had to leave a lot of times and go DJ at five in the morning and then they'd come back. Yeah. And if you weren't willing to still be there at seven when they got back, you just weren't the right guy. Yeah. You know, that was the job and it was a lot of fun. You know, it was a lot of fun and we, we were we were breaking ground I and mean, we were doing music that no that had no rules. Right. So that like actually how cool is that? It was cool. You know, to be a pioneer <laughs> in the cool. music industry in a way that no one else had been. Like that's really unique and it was an unique, honor. but it, you know, it's funny because it's a it, it wound up it's a full circle thing because then so I grew up like I started with 9 inch nails and I started with these kind of bands like uh, that was on was the label of Network Records and Wax Tracks Records and all these kind of very dark trippy kind of things and then all the club records and you know there were no rules we didn't have rules the the I, the goal was to break whatever rules were there if you didn't create something that people who were in a club went oh my god what's happening right now this is the coolest thing I've ever heard I've never heard that before that was the whole goal figure out a way to make something happen that no one ever made happen and we didn't have plugins. We didn't have any kind of pre-programmed effects. It was a rack of stuff on the wall and it was all... So the job was a creative job. How can you figure out how to use these rooms and that gear to make something happen every 30 or 40 seconds in this record that no one's ever heard happen before? Mm -hmm. Or using splicing and tape and things like that. And are you just... Because it's so new, are you just making stuff up as you go as far as like... with? (laughs) <laughs> I mean, yeah, I understand. Yes, you are. But like, does the um, does the education from Berkeley play into it as far as what you know in the in the knobs and things? Or you're just like, I'm yeah. just going to turn this knob and see what happens until something sounds really cool and different. And then totally. that's what we're going to go with. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and I still believe in that wholeheartedly. Do doing it now. So yeah. the reason I said it comes full circle is, you know, we'll, we'll keep going on the journey. But at the end of the journey... Here I am in Nashville, the right. most traditional, yep. everything is about rules and rudimentaries and, and, you know, that's just the opposite of how I grew up. So it's, it's really interesting being in this town because, because you're breaking I, the rules of the town and I'm older than everybody who's working in those rooms now. And my life growing up in all this was, if you follow the rules, don't bother showing up because you're not going to do anything unique or different. But it's different now. Every, you know, it's it's a different process now. It's a different world now. We we have different tools, different everything. So it's it's quite different now. And this town is different. So there's a lot of a lot of interesting yeah. factors that go into that. But. That's cool. Well, before you landed in Nashville, you ended up in L.A. Yep. Because you kind of shifted. I did. Your, your career into not doing, intentionally that. Okay. I went to L.A. to keep doing records. All my records moved out there for. For the house music or just no. everything? I was doing records like Love and Rockets and bands like that that were, you know, sort of iconic, dark, electronic stuff. Yeah. Still, so much of it had to do with that early work, yeah. you know. And when I got to L.A., I went there. I mean, I moved there to keep working on my records, but I fell into television. It was accidental. I, I wound up um, getting a call to do a television show. That was kind of the, 
It was like what later became American Idol and The Voice and all the shows we see now on TV, but those hadn't been birthed yet. It was before all that. It was Ed McMahon who had the oh, original Star, Search. star Well, it was he came. He had Star Search when I was a kid growing right. up, so yep. I knew the format. I watched it all the time yep, when I was a little too. kid. I loved it. And he came back. He couldn't use the name Star Search because Mark Cuban owned it. Okay. So he called it Next Big Star. And oh, it yeah. was, no one had ever done it again. And I'll tell you, it was probably the most uncool thing you could ever work on. It was about like, because it wasn't cool. Those shows weren't cool. Karaoke yeah. wasn't cool. Yeah. You know, singing over singing the rainbow songs, on, yeah. on in a little dress wasn't cool. You know, and it was really, you know, it was weird, but he put together a great team for that show. And that is how what got me into music supervision because I came on as a musical director to make all the music. I didn't know what clearing the music meant, so I agreed to clear the music too. I had no idea what it meant. It wasn't part of the vocabulary of my life yet. Okay. I didn't. No one ever mentioned clearing music. So I made music for for the audience for someone who's thinking about I want to do music supervision, whatever. Mm-hmm. What does clearing a song mean? So that means that you have to identify who all the rights holders are for both the physical recording, we call it a master, mm-hmm. and the copyright, we call it publishing. So that would be the songwriters and the publisher. So there's basically three entities involved. And some of those can be multiples within each one of those entities. Right. So it can be, you know, there could be 20 rights holders involved. Identifying all of them, learning what the cost is for all the different kind of usages on television is this... Is this for a commercial? Is this for a, a you know, primetime television show? Is this for 10 years? Is this for six months? It's, everything has its own set right. of parameters financially around it. So learning all that and learning how to paperwork all that and go out and get those rights and get them signed off on before you hit the stage to film that TV show. So what it really meant was they would book talent for the show and say they would book uh, the next group of people on a Tuesday, we would be shooting that show the following Friday. So I would get introduced to all those singers. So we'd have two two adult males, two adult females, two children male, two children female, dancers, this, that, everything needed music. Mm -hmm. I had to make all that music, but I couldn't make it until I knew I could get the rights for it and we were shooting the following Friday. So by the time I even met them, it was Wednesday. So we basically would have eight days to meet all the people, help them figure out what they wanted to sing or dance to, go out and find all the rights holders, clear all the music, make all the music so they could sing to it or dance to it, and be in Vegas for rehearsal the following Wednesday. So seven-day turnaround to do wow. that job. Um, and we shot it all at the MGM in Vegas. So again... That's, you know, do you, don't say no, say yes. That's, you know, I could have so easily just went, oh my God, I can't do this. This is crazy. Yeah. Just do it. Figure it out. Yep. Do it. You know, it gets harder and harder as you get older. I will say that. Uh, yeah. So do it while you're young. <laughs> while you're young. Well, yeah. I mean, if you're somebody who's coming out of college and this is your goal or, you know, you're, you're still at that age where you have the, the freedom and the flexibility to burn it to burn hours at both ends of the candle, you know, mm-hmm. do it. It's enthusiasm. Because if you don't, somebody else will get the opportunity sure. and their career is going to take off. And Ten you're... people waiting to take it from yeah. you. There used to be one person waiting to take it from you. But now, now there's hundreds waiting yeah. to take it from you because everybody can make music now and everybody is a music supervisor now and everybody's a composer and everybody makes music, at least in the unofficial world of how a life works because everybody has the ability to have a home studio and do this now this these didn't exist at this time sure so there was maybe one person or one in two people at the most that were sort of in the vicinity not working already locked into something else that could maybe step in and do that job but now no you're you're the competition's huge so you have to be more enthusiastic than all the people you're working with that means your bosses the contestants the people, the artists you're producing music for, the songwriters you're cutting a demo with, whatever it is, whoever's in that room, you better be more enthusiastic about what you're doing than any of them are. Mm-hmm. That's what people need. That's sure. the job. It's interesting you say that just because so many times when I'm talking to people and a lot of the interviews that I do, we're always talking about relationships. And that is obviously a huge, huge 
factor in it's knowing people, building relationships with people, trust factors and all those types of things. But I haven't really talked with anybody who's been so specific on the enthusiasm aspect of it. So that's just, it's refreshing to hear that coming from you that no matter, you know, no matter what you're doing, you have to have a lot of enthusiasm and show that to people, let people see that because that's going to, that's going to trigger somebody else to see what you're doing. Someone who's higher up or have another position that needs to be filled and they see that you're enthusiastic about what you do. Yeah. I and think... that wants to, and then that puts the, that kind of, their radar goes up and says, Hey, I want to talk to this guy because I see what he's doing yep. and he's got a lot of passion for what he's doing. I want that where with what I'm doing, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. And I mean, it's, it's the, it's, it's a cornerstone of that relationship you're building, you know? And yeah. I think writing songs, making music on your own, it's easy. Yeah, do it on your own time. You want to stop, you stop, take a break, take a break. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to scrap a song, scrap a song. When you're doing it in a, in an environment, particularly like television, where you are on a clock deadline mm-hmm. and you know, you've got 10 more of these things to deal with. You might be completely stressed out trying to figure out this one. I can't tell you how many times I would be in, I would have been in the middle of working on something and found out we couldn't clear it. Now I got to call that. Now I got to scrap what we've done for 10 hours, two days, whatever it was. It could have been a really hard thing we were doing. Um, scrap it, start the whole process over again, knowing I have like six more of these people to deal with. Mm. And I'm supposed to be three past where I am right now. I don't even know how I'm going to catch up, but if you allow that to affect what you do and get rid of that enthusiasm, that's not the job, yeah. you know? And I was in New York. I was, I was finishing a record for a, a DJ named Lil Lewis who, had, who was fabulous from Chicago at the time. We were working on this single, and he came. He, was, he kind of signed off on it at like 3 in the morning. He was like, this is great. You know, go ahead and print and blah, blah, blah. And he called me the next morning to see how... You know, he assumed I was home and it was finished. And I was like, nah, I'm still here. And so he came back down and I had done more different things and I was still like playing with ideas and stuff. And he said to me, you won't leave here till you're happy, huh? Doesn't matter if I'm happy. You're not going home till you're happy. I said, no. And he, and I said that kind of, and he goes, you're not going home till you think I'm happy. And you didn't think I was happy yet, did you? And I said, I didn't think you were happy yet. Yeah. And that was the bond of our relationship yeah. was I wouldn't leave that place till I knew he was the level of happy I knew I could make him. Not necessarily his perspective on what happy or satisfied is, but what I knew my ability could do. Yeah. And you got to take that into everything you do. Don't ever hand something somebody that makes them happy. Make sure you know that's the happiest you have the capability of making them. Right. Whether that's a vocalist doing a vocal, they don't know how great they can sing. They have no idea. All yeah. they know is the last thing they did. Sure. So if yeah, you that's don't great advice. tax that's really your good. talent level and impose it on them, then you're not finished yet. Yeah. So and that that to me is enthusiasm. I'm just I'm yeah. sort of trying to define what I think no, of I love enthusiasm. It. It's not it's not just, you know, sort of jumping up and down and going, Yeah, you guys are the greatest thing ever. Sure. It's it's bringing you know you're bringing everything you have to that game every day and and making sure nothing's no stones left unturned and you just finish the job yeah no i think that's fantastic to know to to put it that way so that where if i'm the producer to make sure i want to make sure that as excited as i am about it that the artist is going to be that much or more excited yeah i need to be more excited than they are to begin with and then get it them to above the level of excitement that I am yep. at the end of it. So I think that's really good. Elevate them. That's good. Elevate everybody around you. That's yeah. what enthusiasm is. You that's know? great. Elevate everybody around you. I think people who are great take everybody with them. Yep. It's a bigger job than... I think that's where a lot of people get lost when they move to a city like LA. They get lost in focusing on them and trying to be great themselves. That's not what this is. Nothing, I mean, if if you go the route of being an artist and signing your own record deal, it's a little bit of an exception. But if you want to work professionally as a music, as a musician, as a producer, as a songwriter, as a composer for television, as a supervisor, same as a supervisor, 
you know, you you might pick things for a theme or a show, and the producers go, "Yeah, that's cool." You gotta don't. That doesn't mean you're done. Yeah, that's cool. That's not good. That's that's not good enough. Yeah. Oh my God, that's the best thing I've ever heard. Then you're good. Now move on. Right. But you gotta gauge that yourself. If you don't, if you don't keep yourself in check like that and keep that drive going with everything and even the small things. I mean, that's the hard part is I think not, not kind of going, well, that doesn't matter. You know, the little things matter. Big things are easy to get right. Sure. You know, the the, the kid who's on a show who's super talented, he's easy to get right. It's it's, it's the young kid who's having trouble. If you can get him elevated up, that's when the, that's when your bosses go, Wow, I thought that was going to be a total failure. I can't believe he got that sorted out. Yeah. It's kind of like when you watch either The Voice or American Idol, those types of shows, and they are the ones, they're the Carrie Underwoods and people mm-hmm. like that that are phenomenal. And you just know it from the very first day. You know that they're amazing. Yeah. And then there are the other ones that are in the top 20 that, okay, they're really good, but you can tell there's a difference in, in capabilities between Carrie and whoever else. And when you get that, all of a sudden that one episode when that other person jumps up to that next level and you know it, you hear it and you physically see it and you can hear it and you hear that change. You're like, Oh, something changed in right. them. That's what you're wanting to pull off for the people that you're working with. Right. All the time. Right. Cause you take that into television world now. Right. That's great TV. Right. So it's not, not about what happened on the stage. You're making what happened in the, in the back office. You're now you've got two executive producers going, Wow, I didn't think that was going to work, but that was great TV tonight. Yeah. Wow. How did he pull? How did how did that happen? Right, and it doesn't matter if they recognize it had anything to do with you. Who cares? Yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's, you, it happened. That's cool. As long so, as it happened, everybody's moving forward. Yeah, as you're working in TV, you started working. You started doing composing. Yes. So how did you transition from working on the next big star uh, with Ed McMahon and doing the production and creating all the music for those shows into becoming a composer for TV shows. So I went kind of from show to show. I did that. And then I wound up doing star search with Mark Cuban. They brought it back. Oh with, yeah, that's right. With, with Arsenio Hall. We did that. And then we did some real, I mean, just some really random ones, dance fever, all these, all these kind of, all of these shows. you're doing like their production managing and, and like the uh, music directing, uh, music just, directing I'm sorry. and, and yeah. clearing all the music too. Right. Sometimes we'd have a clearance person who would, you know, but you were managing all that. Yeah. And then I, you know, I produced a, a record for Love and Rockets and Kevin Haskins and I were very close and we had a duo that we worked as and we were doing some little video game projects and this and that. And we were, we had built a cool reel of our music. Um, it was kind of a hybrid of his background in music, my background in music, and then some music that we made together for some video games and some little odds and end things that we were trying to get going. And we found our way into uh, CAA, the Creative Artists Agency, as a man, as an agency, for composing, and we went up for a show that was uh, executive produced and directed by Michael Mann, who, if you don't know Michael Mann, Michael Mann is one of the Hollywood classics, like Jim Cameron, uh, you know, one of those guys. Mm-hmm. He's intense. He did the film, Heat. He did Ali and. uh, insider and he's just a brilliant brilliant director um very well known for music and he's he's hard on everything so that was our that was my first show i scored he uh we scored a show called robbery homicide division for michael mann unfortunately it only lasted about 10 episodes because it was tom sizemore was the star and tom sizemore got arrested for drugs and madness and it yeah. ended abruptly yeah. but it was a great show it was based on the film heat and uh it was quite a a, a quick learning curve again i mean it was kind of like and you know doing the award shows with the clearance thing it was like you know how to score yeah i know how to score no no you know you're sitting in spotting <laughs> sessions going how does he know when music should even start yeah and did you learn it all you know but you're not going to learn it if you're not in there swinging the bat okay you know? so let, let's back up just for a second um so you and your partner, so you, you created like a duo yep. uh, for composing. Well, yep. You, yep. you created a duo and then you signed with CAA, yes. which is an agency. Yes. And they're the ones that got you the gig, correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. For, so first of all, 
why did you sign with CAA? Like what was, what compelled you to go that route to get an agent? Oh, I think we thought it was the right thing to do. Okay. <laughs> you know, it was, we thought it was the right thing to do. So we we're like, we're going to get an agent. So we went out to different agencies and sent our music. And, you know, Kevin had uh, a lot of great connections because he was in Bauhaus and he was in Love and Rockets. And so he was, you know, he was already with William Morris as an artist. And he had a lot of, they were very much a, a, a darling band, you know, those bands for particularly back then for music supervisors and for agents and stuff, you know. We definitely had a great advantage from him of getting our music heard. Um, with Michael, it didn't really matter. He didn't care about any of that. He he listened to, I mean, a, probably 50 or 60 submissions of, he, you know, when, when a new show like that's coming out, the, the studio will go out and say to the big agents, hey, you know, Michael Mann has a new show. He's looking for this. Okay. And they'll, everybody sends a ton of music. It's just like anything now. You okay. Know? So when, when a, a TV, when a production company is putting out a TV show, mm -hmm. when they need music, they need a composer yep. to score the show. They're reaching out to these agencies, Correct. CAA and those things like that for them to go find composers Correct. to come in. So that, uh, I, the reason I'm asking that is for listeners to know, you know, because people wonder, oh, how do you how do you become a composer for a TV show? You don't just call up a production company and say, "Hey, I'm a composer and I would love to work on this TV show with you." It doesn't no. work that way, correct? No. Yeah. No. And you know, when we were at the uh, the the pitch the night yeah. you were talking about, I know some of the supervisors there talked about for songwriters get yourself to working with somebody who's a, a you know a a pitcher, somebody who pitches songs to music supervisors that they trust. A licensing agent. A licensing agent. Yeah. Somebody who, when they know music's coming over, they know it's, A, it's going to be good, and B, it's going to be, um, it's going to be sorted legally. You're not, we're not going to be any weird stuff in its samples or anything that's going to get you in trouble. Right. Same thing with scoring television shows. I mean, they're going out to agencies because they want to make sure you're vetted. You're mm -hmm. vetted. You can handle the pressure of it. You can handle the, you know, this the, the schedule, the pace. Just the whole routine of it is, it's very taxing. Scoring a drama is very taxing. I mean, you it's, again, six or seven day turnaround, which really means three to four days to write a score because you've got to have time for them to hear it, make notes, and then revise everything mm -hmm. and then have it to stage a day before we're, you're mixing the show. So you really, it's a seven day window altogether. It's probably about three days to write about 35 minutes of score. Okay, so what is a a day, a twenty four hour day, look like when you're scoring a show? Like, what, how much, what do you get done, and how how long do you work in a day? I mean, are you working twenty four hours? You work in twelve, fifteen hours, eighteen, nineteen hours. Okay, sleep sleeps five, six hours. Okay, really realistically, I mean, being sure, uh, totally yeah, realistic. Because I want I want listeners to know, like, I, I want to score for a TV show. What yep. does what is the re the reality of that look like? Five, six hours of sleep. If in and that, and you're happy. You're really happy. You're like, yeah, I got great night sleep last night. I'm back in. Okay. Um, you're so the the process is. Let's just be hypothetical, but we're gonna we're gonna walk in on a Wednesday. We're gonna spot the episode. So that means the composer. The music supervisor, the editor, and the sound effects group who are doing all the sound effects and foley. Mm -hmm. Everybody meets in there. So in the case of working with like Michael Mann, we would all meet at his forward pass at his production company. We'd get into an edit bay together. They would have cut and edit of the show already because you're always, you're post, you're running way behind them shooting. You're probably four episodes behind where they're shooting. So if they're shooting episode seven, you're posting episode three maybe, right? Because it's got to go through there, and then it's got to go to dailies, and then they're editing. And you, by the time he comes to us, right. now we've assembled a cut that's close. They often will temp score it with music from the show or from you know other scores. So you get in there, you look at it, and you walk through it beat by beat, top to bottom of the show. This is where we want music to start. This is where we want music to end. This should be a song. This should be score. This should be sound design only. This is going to be big sound design and score. So watch out because it's going to be helicopters and all sorts of stuff. So, you know, you walk out kind of with an idea, but then you get home and you don't have any of that sound. You're not working with any of that sound. You just have to remember what we talked about. Lots of notes. Lots of notes. In the case, working with, with Michael Mann, he actually used a dictaphone. He wouldn't. He didn't really talk much with us. He would watch it and kind of talk to himself more. And then that would all get typed up and sent to our houses in a sort of 
show Bible for every episode. We would thumb through it, find everything that was, you know, score, music, this, that. We'd, we'd all have, it looked like a script. And we'd right. just go through and read every note. It would come sometimes at one, two in the morning. You'd wait for it, you'd get it, and you'd start it three or four in the morning, you know, mm-hmm. and get rolling. As soon as you heard the door knock, you'd you go. And that show was awesome. It was gritty and I mean, he's so cinematic and incredible that even, look when you're scoring and it's something I really would say to people getting started scoring, understand that the better the film, the better your experience getting started scoring is going to be okay. It's very hard to score picture. That's not good. Right. It's really hard. I mean, it's, it's like, it's like if you want to be a record producer and you're just working with really bad artists, it's like it's really hard to ever play something for your friends and go, it's not great I did, and it's this awful song with a girl or a guy who can't sing at all. I mean, sure. never, no one's ever going to go, wow. Yeah. You know, and it's the same thing with that scoring. Makes sense. It's like the better that story is and the better the picture is and the better the dialogue and the cinematography and everything, I mean, it just makes everything start to roll. So, mm-hmm. you know, try to find interesting things. They don't have to be famous people, but just try to find stuff that, looks great and feels great and put your energy into that you'll have a better experience but it's scoring's a whole different thing and it it really took time because coming out of the record world music's all about you it's all about you it's all about the self-contained unit when you start doing music for picture it's not about you at all anymore it's about you, you always have to keep in mind that script that episode started as a script probably a year and a half ago. It went through a whole bunch of rewrites in a room with a bunch of writers and they fought. And then it went back and forth to the studio and they rejected and blah, 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 and a lot of harsh everything. Then they went and shot it. Then they reshot a lot of the scenes because the acting wasn't great or the, you know, I'm not particularly talking about Michael because he yeah, had the just best actors on the planet yeah, and general. he's a genius. So, sure. But in general, this is the process. But by the time it gets to you, that thing has been like worked and reworked and it is what they want. So you have to really be cognizant of that, particularly when you get started scoring and don't think, I just want to do cool music and put my cool sound mm-hmm. on it because it's, it's not about you. way too late for you and your cool sound. Right. If you can have a cool sound and have it work, that's a beautiful thing. That's a, that's where magic is made. You know, when you're somebody like Carter Burwell and you've got a really unique voice as a as a composer and it works beautifully to the coen brothers in their freaky films you know Mm -hmm. that's when you just win but you really have to know not only do you have your thing but it has to be subservient to the dialogue to the story that's being told and it has to move with it so one of the you know one of the hardest things for me personally was coming out of dance music and pop music i like to think in layers we already t- you know, talked about that earlier in right. the thing. You know, All the other kids at Berkeley were doing bebop, and I was all about layers and textures. So right. my first erroneous you know, way of scoring in life was remove and add layers to make something feel like it breaks down. It breaks down when you want it to sort of simmer, and then it thickens up again. And that worked great getting started. But the truth is, the real you know, job of a composer is to make each emotional turn and twist moment by moment with that dialogue and to tell all the stories that are, that the director's having a hard time telling. So what you're really in there doing is you're really in there understanding from that spotting session, this character in this scene, we know this just happened. He was just given this book by that person, but we're not yet supposed to know that that book winds up being you know, this horrible thing that is going to tell the story. So make sure you don't mark that book as maybe the scene, it looks almost like that is what's happening. Mm-hmm. So therefore the director is going to say to you, make that book look really light. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure no one thinks that that book's going to Don't put ominous it. music over the first time you see the book. In fact, do the opposite. Right. Light, take everybody's attention completely away from that book because the actor screwed up and made too much of that moment Mm. when you look at it without music that book is seeming like something important because it is something important and they knew that and they reacted to it but they shouldn't have so now my job as a composer is to take you away from that to guide you into 
thinking something else is going on. So those are the kind of things that are important. And you really learn like, it's not about layers. Don't think in pop production. You got to really think much more in unique vehicles as a musician to make the audience follow emotional turns and guide their attention to things that are important and also away from things that are important. Um, that's a huge part of it. You're also doing a lot of fixing. You're fixing a script that, that somebody's unhappy with. You're fixing a bad acting job that somebody's unhappy with. You're fixing all sorts of things. Same with music supervisors. You're fixing stuff all the time. Mm-hmm. The job is not just to polish and make something that was already perfect great. It's like That's not how life is, you know? Yeah. It's a lot of- that's interesting because we don't think about that as viewers and people consuming the shows or the movies or whatever. We don't think about, oh, someone messed up here, so the music's fixing, right. <laughs> kind of overlaying whatever they messed up on. Yeah. So that's interesting to, yeah. to hear and, that. And I use the word like, you know, they messed up this, and it's really like, it can be so subtle. I mean, it could be even a great actor, and they just, like, the beat was just not quite long enough, or the moment was not quite emotional enough, or it was more more than not, it's often too emotional. Like, it's it's rare that things are underdone. It's often when you're scoring that things are overdone and you need to pull them back, mm-hmm. downplay them. And downplaying, when you say to some, to a musician, hey, you know that emotion you know how to write music for? Do the opposite. Mm-hmm. People know how to write something sad, but it's really hard to go, how do I unsad? Mm-hmm. How do I unsad this scene? <laughs> like, it's not happy. <laughs> it's I, put, I can't put happy. I mean, right. think about it for a second. Like, yeah. you can't put happy music to it because that's just going to sound bizarre. Yeah. But how do I unsad it? That's or how do I untense it? How do I unsomething? Yeah. And it's, so it's, it's, that's why I use the word more like vehicles. They're not really necessarily things. They're, they're like it's a bag of tricks you learn. And everybody yeah. kind of has their own. Just out of curiosity, is the director or the producer telling you, you know what, so-and-so, they messed up when they on this dialogue or they, they did an emotion there that they shouldn't have done. Are they telling you that there are those mistakes and I want you to fix that? Or is that something that you're seeing yourself when you're scoring it? You're thinking, ah, that shouldn't have been like that. I'm going to... So or is it a mix, maybe a mix of the two it's things? It's a little bit of a mix of the two. At first, you don't know because you don't know who those people are that are acting and what they're supposed to be doing, okay. right? You're just as in the dark as anybody else. You know, It's weird when you walk into a new show and they've been all working on it for two years before they ever shot anything and you're like clueless and they've all been on set shooting and, you know, mm-hmm. supporting things and making fun of things. And you don't have no, you don't know any of the inside jokes or anything. You're kind of sitting there like a knucklehead, you know, but you learn, you learn quickly and you learn the banter between the executives. Like, you know, it's rare that they'll say to you, man, he just did not nail that scene. Can you sometimes, mm-hmm. sometimes, but you'll also learn, their shorthand terminology between them of like, ah, he blah, blah, blah again. Oh yeah. And you're like, you learn to know what that means. That makes one, one, one executive producer likes it, but that makes the other guy mad. Right. Cause he doesn't like that. And you're making notes. Right. They fight between each other about letting him do that kind of facial expression or something. And you, one likes it, one hates it. So you're finding that happy medium of, you know, you know, I know when they fight over that, if I do this, it makes them both happy. Right. So it's a lot of little gears like that. But so learning to score was a really interesting thing. It is my absolute passion. It is what I love doing. I mean, there's nothing more satisfying than sitting with an amazing scene. What are your three favorite shows that you've scored? Lie to Me, Robbery Homicide Division. And I think, honestly... Uh, the sitcom I did for a long time, Baby Daddy. Okay. Because it was another complete learning experience in my life. It was one of my la- later shows. And I had never done a comedy. Comedy's very difficult. Mm. Like, people think comedy's so, that's a, comedy's the hardest thing. It's just hard. It's hard. It's hard music. It's hard. It, yeah. Comedy works fine without you. Yeah. You don't need music oh, sure, for yeah. comedy. Right? Comedy plays well all by itself. So, more often than not, you ruin comedy. Mm. It's really easy when you've got like, you know, an a FBI crime scene thing and you can just start to put tension and sting things and do things. It just all flows. Everything looks great. You know, it's just how good are you at it? How mature are you at it? How do you the maturity comes in? How do you tell the story? Um, and, you know, you watch guys like Sean Callery who did 24 and he could just follow every movement of every hand and foot and he stung everything there was and it worked beautifully. Some people, I tend to stay back a little bit more and lay back on things and, 
and more create an environment, a mood Mm -hmm. where he was very all the time on it, you know, touching everything. But a comedy is like a whole nother party. I mean, it can work all by itself. You can't, there's not a million things you can do. There's, it's figuring out, God, what works here that makes this feel really invisible, but just paces it along and Mm -hmm. makes it feel great. And, or in a sitcom, it's sitcoms. It was really interesting because you're literally just taking the viewer from one scene to the next scene. So that would sound really simple, but the craft of it is to go, okay, we're leaving this joke and we're hitting this girl crying. Mm-hmm. How it's just do you... the transition music, that little yeah. three to five second, maybe transition yeah. spot. Three seconds. But how do you get from a chord that feels great with them? La- you know, this mm-hmm. really funny, punchy joke to this, you know, heartbreak in one, in two chords. How do yeah. you do that? And it not just feel horrible, right. you know? And it's, again, it's all little vehicles and you learn, but uh, man, doing a sitcom, you really dug into the, the, the nuts and bolts of, clusters and combinations and how fast and radically they affect picture because you're also allowed to be kind of harsh but it all has to work so mm-hmm. it's interesting i mean they're all they're all different crafts yeah. everything's a different craft but you know you just i think it i think doing a lot of things in music's a great thing you know yeah and i don't shy away from any of it I, i'd be happy to do a kids show right now i'd love to do a kids show i'd, I'd be happy to do a, a dark scary horror show it's all fun you know it's all new thank you guys so much for hanging out with us as i talked with doug DeAngelis about producing touring composing and music directing on our show today what a great guy and what amazing amount of information that he's just given in this short amount of time so i hope you took a lot of notes and get ready for part two next week as we continue our conversation we're going to focus more on music supervision and working on award shows and kind of all of those things and the conglomeration of what we talked about this week in addition to the music supervision and working on award shows and composing and how to put those types of things together in your career and how to reach out to people and different facets of the industry that you're wanting to get into. So next week is going to be amazing. Be sure to come back and be ready to take even more notes. So remember, Enabrook Productions is here to help if you need consulting services via phone call, Skype, or FaceTime. Be sure to let me know if there's any way that I can help you begin to make a living in the music industry.